Welcome to Fierce Competition, a podcast from Skadden's global antitrust and competition group that explores antitrust policy and enforcement around the world. Join our colleagues from across the continent as we discuss the latest developments and what they mean to you in an increasingly complex legal and regulatory landscape. Good afternoon, and welcome to the second episode of Fierce Competition, SCAD and ARP's podcast about all things antitrust. My name is Ken Schwartz. I'm based in New York. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues and friends, Tara Reinhardt, based in Washington, D.C., and Aurora Luoma, based in London. We're here to talk about private equity. As an antitrust lawyer, I feel like every week there's a new headline with private equity and antitrust, a new case, a new speech. We want to help unpack the rhetoric and talk about what's really going on. Let's start simple. What is private equity and why is there this focus? You know, when I think of private equity, I, I think of an investment firm looking for opportunities with an investment thesis, could be in distressed opportunities, it could be in thriving opportunities. Private equity certainly spans the gambit of investment and acquisition methods. When I think of benefits of private equity, first and foremost, management expertise, industry expertise, operational expertise, which can translate into sales growth, higher productivity, increased efficiencies, lower costs. You know, that is a typical investment thesis for private equity. At the same time, you see private equity injecting capital into needed companies, rescuing neglected assets, tremendous benefits associated with this asset class. Tara, let me turn it over to you as the former chief litigator at the FTC during the Obama administration. Where is this rhetoric coming from? Where is this focus on private equity? And, and what should private equity clients understand is going on at the agencies? Sure. Thanks, Ken. And, and I am a litigator. Uh, I know, you know Ken does primarily mergers and you're dealing with private equity clients and also partners all the time. Uh, when I was at the FTC as chief trial counsel for the Bureau of Economics in 2014 to 2016, so really the end of the uh, Obama administration. And the Obama administration had really wanted to be more aggressive in antitrust, and they did that. But I was thinking back to my time, and there really wasn't a focus on private equity like we're seeing now. My clear recollection was in the instance where the FTC staff were trying to wrap up a deal investigation and the parties were offering a divestiture to satisfy any concerns, when private equity was part of the mix, one of the options for the divestiture buyer, there was some angst among staff about the fit. You know, was private equity going to be committed to running a business and step into the shoes of the company being acquired, because that's really what the agencies care about with divestiture buyers, is that there's a robust competitor from day one to take over for the company being acquired. And the angst was was surprising to me. I, I didn't know that much about private equity, but the concern was that private equity is so focused on short-term gains and not focused on building a business may not have a lot of experience in the industry and so forth. And so there, there was a lot of angst in that respect. But there are things you can do to, to vet buyers that are private equity. And to me, it didn't ever seem like an impediment. What I did not see 
back then was what we're seeing now, which is this focus on private equity as trying to do serial acquisitions or rolling up industries for nefarious purposes. I just don't recall that back in the day. This seems like a Biden administration issue. I think that's right. I think when I go back in my mind, I think it was Commissioner Chopra during the Trump administration, actually, a Democratic appointee, who who started writing about private equity and and questioning long-term incentives and and beginning this focus on roll-ups. It showed up in some of his statements in the merger review process. And now I think Chair Khan has really taken that to a next level as a focus, you know, including in a recent uh, complaint filed against Wells Carson that, that I know we'll get to. But when I think of short-term games, I, I think it's just too simple to sort of hang that label around private equity. Interestingly, we actually did a, a study of this last year and published an article where we surveyed econometric data that showed private equity investment could lead to higher productivity per employee. Private equity investment could lead to higher quality. And it was actually uh, the fast food industry. Private equity investment led to more SKUs at supermarkets. So I I feel like this label that just gets attached to private equity, or or more a soundbite is probably what it is, of sacrificing short-term gains, it just is not consistent with most, you know, contemporary private equity. Aurora, what are you seeing on your side of the pond? Thanks, Tara. I think it's interesting. Uh, the position that we're seeing in the UK, I'd say compared to the types of angst that you're describing in the US, we don't really see that to the same level coming from the UK Competition Markets Authority, which is the antitrust regulator here. They take perhaps a slightly more neutral approach and the message tends to be uh, business, business as usual. So, you know, when we're thinking about private equity related purchases um, in a divestment scenario, or if we're thinking about deals involving private equity buyers more generally, the message that's coming out of the the CMA seems to be, well, well, we treat everyone the same. We we look, we apply our rules, we apply our the sort of analysis that we apply to any merger or any divestiture buyer. Um, that said, you know, we are seeing some of the points that you've mentioned in the US also echoed in some discussion in the UK, even if it's not quite at the level of angst. So So, for example, the new CEO of the CMA, Sarah Cardell, earlier in spring this year made reference to roll-up acquisitions and noted that they were an area of focus um, and that they had been uh, receiving complaints about the effect of those types of acquisitions um, in particular sectors or particular markets. Um, And we have seen some cases where the CMA has been looking at those, although still very much within the normal paradigm, so applying their usual rules to, to reviewing transactions. The CMA, interestingly, you mentioned divestiture buyers. Whilst... There are some questions sometimes around whether private equity purchasers fulfill the criteria to be a suitable purchaser, depending on their plans for their business, plans for the target in any particular sector. Again, the message tends to be, well, and, and we've heard it explicitly said from, you know, individuals within the regulators, tends to be, you know, we're applying our normal rules. We're thinking about private equity in the same way that we think about any other divestment purchaser. Even if in practice, demonstrating the suitability sometimes can require a different approach to a strategic buy and indeed raise different issues or have fewer issues than a strategic buy. So the other recent thing we've seen in the United States, of course, is the new merger guidelines, right? Ken, now they haven't been fully adopted yet. They think they're still out for comment, but there's a proposal that that's directed, really is directed to private equity, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a 
chance to actually interview a senior FTC official, and we dug into the new roll-up language. And he said what what's really driving it is the FTC and the DOJ are, are laser-focused on, on roll-ups in that they're trying to look at three- and five-year strategies and understand, is this a first step, a second step, a third step towards some undue concentration to some tipping point? And it was an interesting discussion because the, I think the FTC acknowledges it's not an easy case, right? The, the, I'd be surprised, and I think the government would agree with this, that they wouldn't go to court to try to challenge the first of a roll-up strategy. But they did raise, you know, the third or the fourth deal might present different facts, different market structure, different strategies that maybe they would be going to court on that type of issue. So it's at least trying to put something in writing. And we have, as we'll talk about, seen a complaint filed. But I still think it's a very challenging case for the government to bring and ultimately for a judge to sign off on when you're trying to pick apart independent transactions, closed transactions, non-reportable transactions, and paint it as some broad scheme, as opposed to looking at the underlying merits of each incremental transaction. Yeah, it's probably a good time, Ken, for me just to jump in and talk about U.S. Anesthesia Partners, that yep. litigation. Please. So, because we can use that as a as a you know sounding board for everything you just said. The FTC brought that case in September, and this is one where Welsh Carson Private Equity, back in 2012, analyzed markets for anesthesiology services and found that there were markets that were fragmented. And that's not surprising, right? We know our anesthesiologists work locally, so you're not looking at a worldwide or even U.S. market or even regional market. You're looking at local markets. You're looking at small practices. A lot of anesthesiologists, like doctors, go into practices with three or four, 10, 12 other anesthesiologists. So Welsh Carson identified the industry as one that could benefit from some consolidation. And that's probably not even the right word. Could benefit from uh, some heft coming to some of these smaller practices so that they can lower their costs. You know, these are practices that have lots of regulatory issues, administrative licensing and malpractice insurance and so forth. There's a lot of costs, benefits to to banding together to handle these administrative issues. Of course, bigger the practice, the more likely it is that you can you can have contracts with hospitals, for example, as opposed to um, just working at, at smaller smaller surgical centers. So what Welsh Carson did is they created U.S. Anesthesia Partners, and then U.S. Anesthesia Partners went out and started acquiring additional businesses in Texas. And so the local markets were Dallas and Houston and some other other cities in Texas. And they did that over a period of six, seven or more years. It wasn't until just this fall that the FTC said, okay, stop. What we're seeing is that Anesthesiology Partners, USAP for short, has market shares in these localities from anywhere from 49% to 68% or more. And so in the FTC's view, the concentration was too much and uh, would give give USAP too much power. 
So they brought this lawsuit. But I don't know that it's a good test case for the FTC for a couple reasons. One, again, these acquisitions started more than 10 years ago. So there's this long history now of conduct and effects to look at. And I wouldn't be surprised if in discovery we learn that um, there are significant benefits to the anesthesiologists, which are passed down good efficiencies. And my understanding from the reporting I've seen is that the, in terms of the pricing, which is the big concern of the FTC, the, the pricing for the services has just followed the economy. And so not evidence that there's some sort of scheme to get rich quick. A couple colorful emails in the complaint, including one that says cha-ching, but we all know that words don't matter. What matters is what actually happened and what's happening. So I think this is not a good test case for the FTC. There seem to be a fair number of defenses here. I agree. It's a tough test case, especially when you focus on roll-ups and have to take into account scale, lowering costs, geographic expansion, all makes sense. Aurora, you were going to chime in too. I was. I have to jump in and ask and slightly in a different space. As a non-US lawyer, we've obviously seen quite a bit of chatter in the press about the, the recent comments from Senator Warren on the subway acquisition. I'd be very interested in your perspectives on that. Is that another example of, of the US regulators chasing roll-ups? And how do you view that particular case? I think we're all getting a good laugh at the uh, attack by the federal government on Big Sandwich. Um, I'd like to say it's surprising, but on the other hand, uh, in the current administration and current environment, there's just intense scrutiny on private equity transactions, even transactions involving sandwiches. And unlike the, the UK, you know, we have investigatory bodies that have to make a decision on whether to challenge a case in court or not. So the, the agencies investigate, they look at issues, they've been considering somewhat novel issues, uh, you know, whether in a merger context or, or in the litigation context. But just investigating doesn't get you there. They'd have to go to court. And I would be skeptical, you know, using uh, terrorist phrase test cases, I would be skeptical if, if Big Sandwich uh, makes its way yeah. to the courtroom. But the agencies have uh, tremendous flexibility to investigate under the Hart-Scott process. But it really takes a, a lot more evidence, econometrics, just, you know, fire in your belly to, to bring that case in court to actually seek to challenge the transaction. No, I think, I think it's quite interesting. And one of the points I also wanted to perhaps raise and discuss, as I mentioned earlier, that from the UK CMA perspective, we see the CMA applying, you know, the same principles, the same analytical principles um, to a private equity transaction or roll-up deal that we would expect in any other merger, um, insofar as they're looking for, you know, whether um, in their view there's a realistic possibility of a, of a substantial lessening of competition, be it in national, local or other markets. Um, my understanding is that the U.S. can take potentially take a slightly broader view and take a different approach to looking at roll-up deals. So even if they don't identify a, a substantial lessening of competition, they could find routes to, to block a deal. Is that right or is that? The FTC is definitely taking the position that they don't need to satisfy the usual Clayton Act Section 7 standard, which would require them to show that there is likely to be a substantial lessening of competition. The FTC points to its own FTC Act Section 5, 
which prohibits unfair competitive practices, right? Unfair methods of competition. And there is some history of case law out there that shows us what that is, but certainly the FTC's position is it doesn't have to rise to the level of a violation of the Clayton Act or the Sherman Act for them to to prevent a deal. So I don't know that we've seen them test that yet. I wouldn't be surprised if we do see them test that in this administration. Uh, but, you know, time is running short in this administration. And certainly the proposed new merger guidelines basically are a grab bag to find any strategic transaction potentially unlawful or for the agencies to lobby to a judge any strategic transaction is unlawful. And again, I'm, I'm skeptical that the courts are going to embrace, you know, fairly partisan guidelines, especially given the history that prior iterations of the merger guidelines were, were grounded in econometrics and bipartisan. So can you think that these are uh, political steps that are being taken right now? I do. I do. I think you I think you hit the nail on the head that there are people at the agencies that would like to see Congress act. And what we are seeing from the agencies are the types of actions that the anti-monopolist would like to see brought into legislation. So what's your advice for private equity in this environment? You know, I, I think it's, you got to expect the unexpected that you need to build into your definitive documents time to see a transaction through that you need to be prepared to engage with the agencies that you need to be prepared to in the United States litigate if necessary with the agencies. And that can be you know, striking to some clients that are, are, are used to a different enforcement environment where there was a little bit more predictability, a little bit more speed. But in these days, boy, you, you got to be ready to explain your deal on the merits and you got to be ready to, to fight it out if needed. Aurora? Yeah, from my perspective, I, I, I entirely agree with all of that. And one of the key things to think about early on, and this applies to all deals, but I think particularly in this enforcement environment to private equity-related deals is think through the positives of the deal. What, what is your positive case? What are, the, what are the benefits of the transaction that you can take to the authorities and describe to them to offset perhaps some of the messages that we're hearing coming out about the concerns that these types of deals can raise? And I think about that early and weaving that into the deal strategy and engagement with regulators is increasingly important from an early stage. I agree with that. And, and I think especially when you're looking at the industries that the agencies have been concerned about with roll-ups, there seem to be so many pro-competitive benefits to talk about. And maybe at private equity firms, you're not used to, to speaking so much about that, but you should. There's just so much to say, especially in these small professional environments, local environments, private equity may be the only way that these firms can get together to increase their ability to have leverage and to, to lower their costs. So you should say so if that's the case, if you think that's true. I also think, at least in the United States, no deal is too small to be, you know, to escape scrutiny from the agencies at this point. And so you need to be thinking about the regulatory concerns, probably even in deals where historically you wouldn't have, and make sure you get some good analysis done. I, I think you could probably support the pro-competitive benefits with some good good economic analysis early on, which might not be something you typically have done. 
But also think about the acquisition targets. Acquisition targets are hearing the same things in the news that that you are about the agency's concerns. And I think they're going to be cautious and potentially a little gun shy depending on on the nature of the deal you're proposing. And so you probably have another audience to sell to in a different way from the way that you've done historically. No, that's right. I, I had a client years ago who described getting ready for the HSR process as, you know, train hard, fight easy. And, and I think those words are, are more true today than ever. You, know, you need to be prepared. Well, I'd like to thank Tara and Aurora for taking the time to participate in this podcast and we thank you for listening and welcome any feedback and are always happy uh, to speak individually about uh, issues and dynamics and antitrust. You can feel free to reach out to any one of us. Have a great day and many thanks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Fierce Competition. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com.